God spoke through the prophet Ezekiel to the people of Israel, and among all the things he said uh, is this, I hope these words stood out to you, I will give you a new heart and I will put my spirit within you. I mean, how dare he? How dare he? How dare God reach in and change a person? Doesn't that violate their free will? Doesn't that turn them into some kind of robot uh, or just a puppet on a string? How dare he? Or is it, as it sounds, an act of God's mercy and grace to change people? To make an internal change that they never could or would make for themselves. Remember uh, the, these words from the Lord to the people of Israel. They're words uh, that sound and feel frustrated, don't they? Uh, because of years of them having profaned his name uh, by turning again and again back to idolatry. And yet God in his mercy says, I will take things out of your hands and I will put in you a new heart. I will give you my spirit and I will draw you back to me. You will be my people and I will be your God. And that will be. That's where we come to in our study of the doctrines of grace under the acronym TULIP, which will be familiar to you if you've been with us over the last few weeks, uh, maybe familiar to you anyway. Um, number four, irresistible grace uh, is the one that we're up to today. We've seen so far that uh, according to the T uh, in sin, we are totally depraved. We are without redeeming features. We are uh, unworthy of God's love. We are unable uh, to earn it for ourselves and even unwilling to turn to him even in our best moments. Uh, we've learned uh, by unconditional election that man's only help only hope for salvation is for God in his own hidden wisdom to choose some to show his mercy to. Uh, we've also seen last week that God sent his son into the world to atone for the sins of those he's chosen, the elect, to have their sin, their sin written onto his perfect record and for him to die with that sin held against him and thus satisfy God's justice so that some, those who trust in Jesus, may be forgiven. Uh, because it is only by faith that any are saved, and we are unable and unwilling to reach that point on our own steam because of our sin, God must call the ones he has chosen and draw them irresistibly to put their trust in him. That's where we're up to today. Uh, and next week, we will see that God will persevere to the end with the ones he chooses. None will be lost. Uh, in today's Ezekiel reading, we see these things play out in almost this order, this same stuff. We see total depravity. You have profaned my holy name among the nations. Even you, the people of Israel, again and again and again profaned my holy name. Unconditional election. He says, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel. Clearly not because of any good they have done. It is not for your sake that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned. In God's own wisdom, he has chosen to save some and preserve some. He says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Uh, last week we looked at limited atonement, which uh, gets spoken to in this passage as well. I will take you from the nations, I will gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And notice in there, uh, not only that he is uh, 
making a distinction and separating, but how deliberate uh, and active the action is. I will take you. It is done. I will gather you. I will bring you. And then we see the atonement, uh, the, the washing away of our sin uh, in this symbol of water being sprinkled on them. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And then irresistible grace, I've already mentioned this today, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I will cause you. I will do it. And the saints will persevere. He says, I will cause you to walk in my statutes. Uh, You will continue and carry on in my ways. And I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. And never again. Uh, God is making a a long-standing promise that he will not fall from. Uh, So, as I've said... Uh, in other weeks, this formulation of five points, T-U-L-I-M-P, it's the product of a historic argument. 400 years ago, a group of Dutch pastors and theologians met at the Synod of Dort uh, to argue five points of theology that a group called the Remonstrants brought to the table. Uh, and, uh, and this is their fourth point, their fourth article of Remonstrants. Uh, article number four, that this saving grace of God, the saving grace of God, Uh, is the beginning, continuance, and accomplishment of all good, even to this extent, that the regenerate man himself, without prevenient or assisting, awakening, following, and cooperative grace, can neither think, will, nor do good, nor withstand any temptations to evil, so that all good deeds or movements that can be conceived must be ascribed to the grace of God in Christ. But respects the mode of the operation of this grace, uh, but in respect to the mode of the operation of this grace, it is not irresistible, inasmuch as it is written concerning many that they have resisted the Holy Ghost, or as we often say, the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 7 and elsewhere in many places. Now, this is, uh, uh, this is a translation to English of, of what was brought to the council, but I've put the two main points in bold, which I think boil it down for us. Number one, all good deeds or acts of faith must be ascribed to the grace of God in Christ. Uh, Now, remember when uh, the remonstrants brought these articles to the Synod of Dort, they were struck down. Uh, They were argued against, but not on every single point. And this point, I think we can all agree with. Uh, The council was more than happy to find in favour of this much. All good deeds or acts of faith must be ascribed to the grace of God in Christ. It is only because of God, that anything good can be found in the heart or actions of a sinful man, only by the grace of God. The Synod of Dort had no problems with this statement. You and I shouldn't either. If you have a clear, uh, biblical and truthful perspective of yourself, then you will know that your own heart is deceptive and evil and it leans towards self-interest by nature. That's your natural inclination. I know it's mine. No matter how conscious you were of your own uh, will when you first put your faith in Christ, no matter how deliberate that first step or prayer or whatever it was was for you, and no, no, no matter how deliberate you are when you love others and make genuine sacrifices, which I know many of you do, 
all glory for these things belong to God alone, who has given you that much grace to do those things. Amen and amen. But the second point they make is this, that God's grace is not irresistible. Uh, and they say this uh, uh, with, some, uh, with some merit, right? Uh, they say this because in Acts chapter 7, which they reference themselves and other parts of Scripture, it is obvious that people do indeed resist and reject the work of the Holy Spirit. It happens uh, in my life, it happens in yours, and it happens in the lives of people around us, and it happened uh, throughout the history of the people of Israel, uh, as we've uh, sort of touched on even from Ezekiel. And yet this is the part that the Synod of Dort found issue with, although not entirely, because it is true that God's grace is often resisted. Uh, But their issues were basically these. So I've got a few points to make on this. Um, The first issue was this, that it is internally inconsistent uh, to say uh, that God's grace, uh, God's saving grace specifically, is resistible. See, both the findings of the Synod and the arguments of the Remonstrants, so both sides, the Arminians and the Calvinists, both theoretically agreed on the first point of total depravity, that mankind is, is sin uh, and uh, sinful and enslaved, that man has no good in himself and is thoroughly unworthy, unable, unwilling to receive God's love. But the remonstrants seem to want to have their cake and eat it too, to acknowledge total depravity, which is quite plain from Scripture, but to also hold, uh, yes, on the one hand, that sinful mankind only ever resists God, but then in the other hand, at the same point, to say that some men and women, by their own will, presumably, at some point, stop resisting God's grace, uh, which is precisely the thing that, by their nature, they only ever do. People who have a nature that only ever resist God, but then at some point, to stop resisting. But that's by their own will at that point. If it's true, though, that we are totally depraved, which we apparently all agree on, or at least both sides on that argument, although I'd have to say uh, increasingly in modern Christianity, or at least modern Western Christianity, people don't necessarily agree to that. I think people have far too high a view uh, of themselves. Uh, but, if we, but if it is true that we are totally depraved, then we can only stop our pattern of resistance if God graciously overcomes our resistance, if he overcomes our own will, and if he grants us faith. Uh, So it's internally inconsistent to want to have your cake and eat it too. Uh, But also this point raises some theological red flags. It's another reason why the Synod of Dort wanted to, uh, chose in the end prayerfully to take issue with this. It raises theological red flags. They were conscious of another historical Christian debate Uh, from about a 1,000 years or 1,200 years before that, uh, about Pelagianism. Uh, And many of us probably don't know what Pelagianism is, but it was a 4th century theological idea that runs opposite to total depravity. Uh, It gives humans way too much credit uh, for their own ability to obey God, uh, even to the point of suggesting that it's it's possible for a man or a woman uh, to achieve perfection in their life. Uh, It says that humans are able by their own free will to achieve perfection. And so the Synod of Dort was concerned 
uh, that if it is taught that our faith is anything less than an absolute gift of God and only of God, uh, then people might fall into the trap of giving themselves way too much credit for the gift of salvation, of having, uh, of saying, well, if I've gone this far and said that I've made a choice of my own will to follow God, uh, then to give themselves too much credit, uh, firstly stripping the glory that belongs only to God, but then also starting to believe and suspect that maybe on their own steam they can do other good things and greater things and maybe even achieve something like perfection in their life. But this also raises pastoral red flags, uh, as in a concern that if people go down this track, not only are they maybe, you know, committing heresy in some court, but actually in their own lives, pastorally and personally, they may do themselves harm uh, to go too far down this track. That if people buy too much into the idea that they could have resisted God's gift, but at some point I chose not to, then that might be the first step down a slippery slope that leads people to accept more and more of Pelagianism, which suggests it's possible on your own steam to lead a sinless life. And that sort of, sort of idea might be good for your self-esteem. I mean, it sounds good to say, you know, you are perfect and fine just the way you are. You are beautiful. You can accomplish anything. That's uh, the stuff our schools will teach us. It sounds good. It goes down nice. It's a sugary sweet. But it's only, the enjoyment is only good for the short term. Ultimately, failure leads to discouragement. And then... Failure leads even to question the certainty of the gift of your own salvation. Every sin under this framework, instead of being another reason to repent and turn to Christ, becomes another arrow that suggests your faith isn't sufficient and maybe God's grace isn't sufficient either. So this, is, this was a concern, especially uh, at the time of the Synod of Dort, that they wanted to strike down any whiff of Pelagianism. Uh, which is why they came down, a uh, part of why they came down so strong against this point. But also to say that God's grace is not irresistible is biblically incomplete. So it's not entirely untrue, but it's biblically incomplete. See, the remonstrants were right to raise Acts 7 as an argument that God's grace is frequently resisted. It is. Let me tell you what happens in Acts 7. Uh, It's in the months after Jesus had risen to heaven. Stephen is an elected leader in the church in Jerusalem. Uh, Some other Jews rise up to debate Stephen. Uh, But it says in Acts chapter 6, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. They couldn't stand up against this guy. And so they raise a rabble to arrest Stephen on false charges. Does that sound familiar? Sounds like he's following in the footsteps of his saviour. In Acts 7, uh, we find the speech that Stephen gives in his own defence. But by the end of his defence, he turns to offence. And he says this, in verse 51 of Acts 7, he says, You stiff-necked people, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. He testifies not only to their resistance of the Holy Spirit, which of course they are doing, but also to the historic resistance, pattern of resistance to the Holy Spirit that their shared ancestors had proven over thousands of years. And so in an act of absolute and final resistance, 
the crowd rush him and stone Stephen to death, the first martyr after Jesus. So yes, the Bible gives us many examples of people resisting God's call. And it tells us that there is a genuine call to believe and repent that goes out to everyone and is resisted uh, or, or rejected by many. So we've read about this as well uh, in today's uh, New Testament reading that Tom read in John chapter 6. Uh, I am the bread of life, Jesus says. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That is a free and open invitation, a genuine offer to all that whoever answers this call, they will not be turned away. Again, further down in the same chapter, this is the will of my Father, Jesus says, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on that last day. Again, everyone who looks on the sun, it's, it's an open, genuine call. The problem is that most people will never answer that call and they will and do resist it. That's, that much is not surprising. But the Bible also teaches that there is a call, another call, that cannot be resisted, that is not resisted. A specific and personal call that will be effective. While his audience resists and grumbles at his words, Jesus says this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It can only happen if the Father draws him. And I will raise him up on that last day. That person will come to me and I will raise that person up on the last day. In another place, uh, John chapter 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. They will listen to my voice. Now, the Bible doesn't give two different names to the two different calls. It just says that God calls. Uh, it says at different times that God calls and people resist it and other times that he calls and those people will and do answer the call. But when the remonstrants insist only that God's call can be resisted, they use some of the biblical data to dismiss the rest of the biblical data. And so that's why I say it's biblically incomplete. Instead, we do better to read each passage in context and then I think we have to bow to the teaching of Scripture that while it is in man's nature and record and our pattern to resist God's grace and His will, nobody's denying that much, God does choose in His own generous wisdom to draw some irresistibly to himself, to overcome your resistance and draw you to himself. And so scripture teaches uh, two different calls. And Calvinism or the findings of the Synod of Dort is an attempt to acknowledge every thread of scripture. Uh, even if it's hard to philosophically reconcile every bit of it or, or how it all comes together, there seems to be two threads. There seems to be two calls. There is a general call, a call that goes out um, externally that everyone has an opportunity to hear uh, and, uh, and is universal. So that even by, uh, in the book of Romans, it says uh, that even by God's creation and his goodness that, ev that is evidence in creation, uh, no one is without excuse for not turning to God. There is a genuine, external, general, universal call to acknowledge God as Lord and Saviour. And that call 
can be, and often is, resisted. But there is another call, a specific call, for those of God's elect who he has chosen in his wisdom. And to those who he has chosen, he calls them also internally, and specifically by name, and most importantly, irresistibly, so that his gift of salvation won't, is not wasted. It doesn't fall uh, uncared about. It's irresistible. It is effectual. It does its work. Now, one question uh, that often does arise when uh, in discussions about the doctrines of grace or Calvinism or, uh, or whatever it is you want to call them, is that if this is all true, uh, that God elects or chooses some for salvation, what should we expect to see in the life of somebody who is saved? The Bible is quite clear that it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Do the teachings of Calvinism suggest that the salvation of souls is so arbitrary that it's impossible to tell who is and isn't saved. What about faith, for example? Shouldn't all those who are saved at least have faith in God, or are they chosen apart from their faith? In God's unconditional, is God's unconditional election so arbitrary and applied so secretly that it's disconnected from the life of faith? So that the person who trusts Christ and does good deeds might not actually be saved after all. They might have just duped themselves into thinking, you know, I'm saved because, you know, I believe. But actually then secretly not one of the elect. This is one of the concerns that comes up against these discussions. Or, you know, the flip side. Is the flip side true? That for all the terrible things uh, that Hitler did, for example, to choose the big bad guy... Could there still be a 50-50 chance that he might have been one of the elect and he's in heaven now in spite of the life that he led? Well, that's where the teaching of irresistible grace comes in. It's a teaching that all who are saved by God's generous choice actually will live a life of faith, will be brought in their life to a point of putting their trust in Jesus. It's just that that action of putting your trust in Jesus uh, is a work of God's grace to have brought them to that point. A time will come in this person's life when they will leave their old ways behind and entirely surrender themselves to the forgiveness and the will of God. But if it is true that a person is totally depraved, that is sinful to the extent that they could and would never take such a leap of faith on their own, and even a person's faith can only ever be because God has irresistibly called them towards himself. So yes, every person will be brought to the point of decision. Do I or do I not put my trust in Christ? But our pattern of resistance is so, runs so deep that we will only be enabled uh, to put our trust in Jesus and obey him in our life if he reaches in and gives us a new heart with new desires to submit to his will rather than reject it. Uh, yesterday to uh, Natalie, my wife, to her great disappointment, our washing machine stopped draining through the hose. Our washing machine has no desire at all to fix itself. In fact, even though it's been quite faithful for six years, its rebellions are becoming more and more frequent. It may be destined for the scrap heap 
outside the city walls. Its only hope is for someone to reach in from the outside and give it a new heart or a new pump or something, whatever it is that it needs. It has no will on its own to save itself, and it won't. It will only get worse. And the same is true of us. Now, you might not like that illustration because a washing machine is an inanimate object. You and I are not. We live and breathe. We have experience. We make decisions. But God's Word teaches that sin makes us like an inanimate object. That sin reduces us not just to sickness, but to death. Remember what God said through the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 36. He said, I will remove the heart of stone from you. Your heart is lifeless. It has no will in its own to repair itself. It's like a dead, drainless washing machine. I will remove the heart of stone from you and give you a heart of flesh. I will give you my spirit to dwell within you. Now that is good news, isn't it? That God would overcome our own resistance to draw us to himself. Now the question is, there is another question that arises from this, and that is how do you reflect on your own life of faith then? If you, if you are here today as someone uh, who has put your trust in Jesus, how do you reflect on that? How do you uh, think back on the times where you have deliberately and willfully chosen his ways over other ways? Uh, how do we honestly uh, reflect? I'm going to read just a few words from 1 Timothy. These are uh, letters, uh, words written by uh, the Apostle Paul as he reflects on his own life of faith. Uh, and it is true that Paul uh, did many things and made many choices repeatedly to follow the Lord and obey his will and his call. But you can see through everything he says about himself, just a strain, a constant strain uh, of God's kindness to him, of his thorough dependence on the internal work of God in him. So I'm going to read, this is by way of conclusion really, what Paul writes about himself in 1 Timothy chapter 1. I thank him who has given me strength. See, Paul has strength, it's just not his own. Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and insolent opponent, nothing worthy in Paul's own life, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Commit this to memory. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. We see the same thing, don't we, in, in God's words through Ezekiel to the people of Israel, that although they have sinned irreparably, no, absolutely not worthy in any sense 
of God's love or glory or praise. He offers to reach down, replace their lifeless heart of stone with a new heart of flesh, to give them his own spirit and to call them out of the nations to retrieve the honour for his name that's been profaned by his own people. To the praise of his glory, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. God in heaven, when we uh, read your word and it rings true, uh, we have to admit uh, that there is nothing redeemable uh, in our own lives. And Father, as we look at our own lives, it also rings true uh, that we are people who do not deserve uh, your, uh, your love. We are unworthy. But you are a God who works miracles. And you have worked a miracle in the lives of many here. Uh, we thank you uh, that you have overcome our resistance to your will. We pray that uh, you will continue to do that uh, so that we can be empowered by your Spirit to make the wise choices that we never would on our own. We pray that we will be humbled to repentance and in our faith and life uh, that we receive from you that we will continue in humility knowing that the work uh, has all been yours. We pray that to the praise of your glory, uh, you might uh, be pleased to do great works through us and in us, uh, so that you uh, will be glorified in the nations and in our neighbourhood. Amen.